Today's episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Derek Van Riper here with Michael Beller. It is Friday, April 10th. Uh, no guest on the episode this week, but we are closing in on the start of the first, what I hope is an annual event, the Fantasy Baseball Triple Crown Leagues, as I've started to call them, thanks to our friend Ian Kahn. Uh, they are auctions likely starting up this coming Wednesday night, April 15th. And there's going to be three of them, of course, with it being a Triple Crown. There'll be a mixed league, an AL only, and an NL only. And uh, we're doing this for charity here in the 2020 season, because if there is no 2020 season, oh well, we gave all the money to charity, so it doesn't matter uh, that we can't pay out league prizes. And uh, obviously we're trying to help some people in need through Feeding America, uh, Second Harvest in particular, one based out of uh, southern Wisconsin. So hopefully we'll have some fun content around that. Uh, And to be candid, uh, Michael and I were talking about what we were going to do for today's show, and It was a little bit tough to pin down a topic because we're kind of just in that lull right now where the news has shut off. We haven't reached a point as we progress through the pandemic to where we have any true feeling of when baseball is going to come back. So coming up with ideas is a little bit more difficult right now, but I think we got something pretty good here. We're going to talk about some risers and fallers uh, between... February and March, looking at NFBC data and kind of weeding out the obvious fallers, the Chris Sales, the Noah Syndergaards, players like that. So, Beller, how's it going for you on this Friday? It's uh, it's going all right, Derek. Um, you know, uh, you, you and I uh, live uh, geographically uh, pretty close to each other, at least latitude and longitudinally. So, uh, as you know, uh, the uh, the weather has uh, improved in the upper Midwest, and even though we're all homebound right now, uh, nothing a little sunshine and warmth can't uh, can't bring to your life. So that that's been uh, that's been very nice, and I agree. I think uh, even though the news spigot now in baseball uh, is being uh, maybe not completely turned off, but certainly slowed down. Uh, it was a little bit harder to come up with something here for this show, but I think we, I think we've got some good things to talk about here and to uh, keep up alive that we're going to have a 2020 baseball season. Yeah, and we got a couple other fallback topics as well if we cruise through these risers and fallers. But what I did for the sake of, of finding some some movers, I took a look at the full scope of the February NFBC ADP data. It's a variety of different leagues. There's some draft and holds, there's online championships, there are uh, other formats sprinkled in as well, but still just looking at the overall treatment of players, and we kind of broke this down by group, where we have some movers in the top 50, some more movers within the top 100, and another group uh, inside the top 200 overall, and clearly the the moves in the top 50, it doesn't take as much to be impactful there. Uh, so we'll start with some fallers, and Guys who are not expected to miss time whenever this season does begin, but I think because of some of the uncertainty about their status, if the season had started at the end of March, they were pretty big fallers early on. Blake Snell tops the list. He dropped 14 spots from February to March. 
I kind of stayed away from Blake Snell in my drafts to this point because he did have the elbow procedure last season that caused him to spend some time on the IL, and it was an arm injury again that was limiting him during spring training. The prevailing belief is that he will be healthy when baseball does return at some point, whether that's in a few weeks or a couple months or next year. Uh, So am I right to be careful when it comes to Blake Snell, considering that the price, even with that discount, is still pretty high? We're still talking about an early round pick, uh, a guy who goes 48th overall on average looking back at March ADP. Yeah, I think you're right to still be wary about him, and it's got everything to do with that price. I, if you told me that Blake Snell, you know, if you if we have a season and you woke me up in October and said, "Hey, guess what? Blake Snell was a top three fantasy pitcher," I would say, "Yeah, sure, I could see that. He's done it before. Uh, you know, he got healthy. It all worked out for him. He stayed healthy. That strikeout upside really came through. Yada yada yada. He did it. He's a top three pitcher." But we obviously know that he has a lot of other competition, and the problem is that even the discounted price requires you to take on a pretty hefty opportunity cost when you are taking Blake Snell. That's really what scares me away. The injury at this point doesn't scare me too much. Obviously, it's something that needs to be factored into the discussion, but uh, we have no reason to believe that he is not going to be ready to go once the season does begin. So he gets a little bit of a, of a, of a knock for that, but not a huge one. It's just the opportunity cost. There are so many other guys that are in that same draft day neighborhood where Blake Snell is living that I am just way more comfortable with. Guys, hitters and pitchers, uh, people who I I feel very comfortable knowing I am going to get XYZ out of this player. And, you know, Blake Snell, I could be getting XYZ or I could be getting 4-5-6. It's just too much of a mixed bag at that stage of the draft for me to feel comfortable going in on Blake Snell. If you like Blake Snell, if you believe that he's going to be healthy and that the pitcher we saw in 2018 is more the real version than the one we saw in 2019, more power to you, and you may end up being right. Uh, For me, I just think the opportunity cost associated with him is too great uh, early on in the draft. You still want to be locking in, I think, more sure things than what Blake Snell brings to the table this year. Yeah, and if you look at just the most recent snapshot of ADP, basically the 10 days we've gone through so far in April, you're going to see names like Luis Castillo, Patrick Corbin, uh, Lucas Giolito, Chris Paddock. That's sort of the cluster that Mm -hmm. Snell is a part of now, whereas previously he was one notch above that. He was kind of lumped in, kind of behind where Mike Clevenger and Steven Strasburg would go, maybe even in that same group. Uh, So a decent drop for Snell and a guy that I think is going to be tricky to figure out if you're drafting at some point in April. If you're kind of in this middle ground where we are going to be with our our Triple Crown Leagues, you don't know what kind of activity he's capable of because everybody is limited to what they can do basically at home on their own right now. So uh, definitely a, a difficult situation to figure out. The other biggest fallers inside the top 50, Justin Verlander, I mean, it's not a season-ending injury. It's not like Sailor Syndergaard, who we filtered out. Uh, He dropped about a half round, and I just think there's this prevailing belief that because he's a veteran and because he's had uh, similar issues in the past that he kind of knows what it's going to take to recover completely. I was surprised to see, just looking at the, the April ADPs, that he's still inside the top 20 even after sliding, but he was previously kind of locked in in 15-team leagues as a late first-round pick. His ADP was 13 in January, it was 13 in February, comes out of March at 19. 
similar thoughts here that we had with Snell. I mean, are you pulling back a little bit on Verlander? Does he truly fall out of the the big four among starting pitchers for you as a result of the, the injuries this spring? Again, I think he has to, and it could end up being where he is not only still in the big four, proves to be there, but is the best of that. But we can only make the decisions uh, in the moment with the information that we have available to us. And I just don't see how you can be that confident that you are passing on uh, looking at his, his ADP cluster, Jose Ramirez, Fernando Tatis, uh, Bryce Harper, Jack Flaherty, Anthony Rendon. All those guys, to me, feel like better plays uh, at that uh, price point than Justin Verlander because of the injury. I think what's keeping him so stubbornly high is a combination of two things. The first is what you said. This is a guy who uh, is a veteran, who has been injured before, who knows how to uh, maintain his body, to treat his body right, to come back from an injury and be exactly the guy who we thought he was pre-injury. And I think he's earned that, certainly, uh, with what he's done in his career, uh, with the injuries that he's had and come back from. I think he definitely earns the benefit of the doubt when it comes to that. I think the second thing that keeps him so high is uh, the seeming dearth of true fantasy ace options that are available. And once you get beyond uh, DeGrom and Cole and Walker Bueller, I think, and um, and Max Scherzer, I think you're going to see people really start to want to get that next pitcher. And Verlander, because of what the ceiling is, because of his veteran status, because of the fact that it doesn't seem like the injury is going to cost him much, if any time, based on when this 2020 season does start, is still going to slot there, right? I mean, you start looking at the next pitchers on the board, Jack Flaherty uh, is just a couple of spots behind him in ADP. I think that's where you start to get people willing to pay the injury tax for something they think is more of a sure thing uh, in Verlander. Now, for me, it's still not going to happen because I think the opportunity cost is way too high, especially when you're talking about not just the pitchers, but the associated hitters that you have to pass on. I understand why Verlander is still being taken inside the top 20 in uh, recent drafts and drafts over the last 10 days. It's just a price that I can't get myself to. There's too much risk and too many sure things around him. Yeah, I, I'm with you there on Verlander at this point. I just don't I don't see myself spending a top 20 pick on him. I think if he fell... 10, 15 spots, maybe I could start to think about it because I think that's where that drop-off sort of begins for the early round bats, and maybe I'm a little more willing to take on risk after I've locked in a couple of players that I feel really good about. Now, a teammate of Justin Verlander, Jordan Alvarez, was also among the biggest fallers inside the top 50 in March. He dropped five spots, so, you know, almost a half round in a 12-team league. Uh, I mean, he's UT only, but he's supposed to play more left field this season, according to the Athletics' Jake Kaplan. So we'll see if the Astros are serious about that. But the reason Jordan Alvarez slipped is because of a problem with knee soreness in both knees, which for a 22-year-old is a pretty big concern. And, and sometimes this happens. Players ramp up their activity in spring training, and there's inflammation just because they are, they're working out in a different sort of way than they were prior to reporting to spring training. But... How much of a red flag is it for you to see a 22-year-old battling knee soreness in March? I mean, that that just doesn't bode well, and, and sure, rest might help, but uh, where are you at on Alvarez right now? That's a huge red flag for me, DVR, and for a, a number of reasons. Not, I mean, forget about just the knee soreness for a 22-year-old, which I think is obviously a red flag. Uh, yeah, our, our own Jay Kaplan says they're going to play him more in left field. Well, are they? If he has this knee soreness and he's a six foot five, two hundred twenty five pound man, are they really going to play him more in left field? I'll believe that 
when I see it. Secondly, he was always going to still have the, um, I don't want to say doubt, maybe that's not quite the right word, but he didn't, I mean, he was ridiculous when he came up last year, but there's still not a huge track record to lean on. Uh, we've seen plenty of guys come in like a house of fire their first year and regress a little bit in year two while still being a great player and while still uh, having this excellent foundation that takes them forward in their career. That was always going to be in play for Jordan Alvarez as well. So I think you take these couple of things, you put them together, and you start to get the picture of a player that has a lot more risk than his 2019 numbers would suggest. Uh, knees can be a uh, obviously a very tricky thing. If it does, if it is something that requires rest, is he going to be able to play every day? I mean, we could be looking at a condensed schedule. This is a, an Astros team that can maybe afford to sit him down every now and again more than they would have if he were completely healthy. So now does volume start to become a concern for him? Uh, how does the knee hold up, uh, especially the left knee? I mean, being that, that lead leg, uh, how does that hold up through, uh, you know, four or five plate appearances day after day after day after day? Is he going to be able to have the same torque in his swing? Uh, these are all questions that I don't have the answers to, and I don't know if anyone does, but that, again, is the point with guys who are coming into the season with pre-existing injuries and are still being drafted highly. If there are too many questions and you look at guys who are right next to them on those ADP charts who don't have those questions, even if you think Jordan Alvarez, Justin Verlander, Blake Snell have the higher ceiling and you might be right, you are almost not really paying for the ceiling at that point. You have to pay for the floor, and the floor on these guys, I think especially Alvarez compared with the pitchers, is just too low to trust where that ADP is. So I don't want to sound like a broken record, but these are you know birds of a feather with these three guys because of the injuries that they come into the season with. It just starts to get to a point where you are going to want to take, or at least I am going to want to take, won't speak for everyone out there, the sure thing, the guy who feels like the sure thing, and nine times out of ten is going to be the guy who comes into the season with a clean bill of health. And for me, yeah, it, it is all health related. I don't think I was doubting Alvarez's skills coming into draft season. I mean, this is a guy who had the second best WRC plus in baseball last year. If you set the threshold to 300 plate appearances, he of course only played 87 games, so he got to 369 plate appearances. But Mike Trout was the only player in baseball with a higher WRC plus than Jordan Alvarez last year. And even if you regress him pretty significantly, we could still be looking at a guy who's 30% better than a league average mm -hmm. hitter as a baseline, which is remarkable. Uh, and if you look back historically, if you take a 10-year view, just look at the past decade, same criteria, minimum 300 plate appearances. Jordan Alvarez's season in 2019 is 12th. It's actually tied for 11th in terms of WRC plus in a season. The seasons ahead of him, Bryce Harper's 2015, ridiculous. Uh, Miggy mm. in 2013, Hanley Ramirez is up there. Shockingly, Mike Trout has three seasons <laughs> that are better than Jordan Alvarez's oh uh, 2019. So that's pretty wild to see that. Uh, there's a 2010 Justin Morneau season that popped in there. 2011 oh. Jose Bautista. 2011 Mike Napoli doesn't seem to fit very good. Uh, that's the that's the outlier on this list. Yeah. And 2012 Joey Votto. Uh, but yeah, mostly we're talking about Hall of Fame talent, all-time great type players putting up numbers that good in a season just over the last uh, 10 years. So I think he's a special player, but I'm definitely concerned about the injury. And I got him enough in early drafts where I don't really need to get him anywhere else uh, unless the price falls even further than it has to this point. 
let's be positive for a little bit. Let's talk about some players who've moved up. If players fall, then obviously some players have to creep up the board. The biggest mover going up in the top 50 has been Clayton Kershaw. He jumped 10 spots in ADP from February to March. Makes some sense, of course, with Snell dropping a little more than that, with Verlander dropping, as we talked about before. Uh, my confidence in Kershaw has been rising in draft season, so I can kind of rationalize how this has happened beyond just the dynamics of if people come down, other players must come up. Uh, in a shortened season especially, I think the Dodgers can just let their starters do their thing without really worrying about pulling back and trying to preserve innings for October. That was less of a concern with Kershaw. I think the greater concern is he's had, he's had multiple back injuries in recent years. Uh, but performance-wise, we saw it last year, Beller. 303 ERA, 104 whip, 189 strikeouts in 178 in the third innings. He still looks, if he's not Pete Kershaw, that's fine. He still looks like a legitimate top 10 starter to me. Yeah, he's almost a victim of his previous dominance, right? I mean, that Kershaw is almost certainly gone, um, and that Kershaw was one of the best pitchers any of us has ever seen. But you rattled off the numbers that he had last year. I mean, still a very good pitcher who is going to have a great offense at his back, uh, strong enough bullpen behind him, which should keep that win upside nice and high. The one thing that concerns me about him just a little bit, just a little bit, is that this team does have that tremendous starting pitcher depth, and I think they could still tap into it. Now, we're still uh, you know, aiming at a moving target in what this 2020 season might look like, but in some form or fashion, if it does happen, it seems like it's going to be a condensed schedule. Maybe we're getting some extra doubleheaders. Maybe teams aren't having the same number of days off that they're used to having, uh, and obviously uh, fewer games to be played. Now, on one side of that, it says to us, you know, the Dodgers can tap into their starting pitching depth. They've got uh, Ross Stripling, who is going to start the season in the bullpen or was going to start the season in the bullpen, had the season started on time. That's a guy who would be, I think, in 29 out of 30 starting rotations. He just happens to be on that 30th team that puts him into the bullpen. So they're going to be able to lean on that depth, and maybe they t- they have Kershaw you know, skip a start every, every I don't know, five times through the rotation or every three times through the rotation, we're going to add a six-man. Or maybe we'll just go straight six-man the entire season. On the other side of this, the Dodgers are clearly the very best team in the National League National League West. It's not even close, right? But anything can happen if we're talking about an 80-game season. I mean, how many times do we see surprise teams that are in it on June 1st and are nowhere near the playoff conversation, you know, by August 15th? Well, June 1st, the, the, the version of June 1st in 2020 is going to be pretty damn close to the end of the season. So what if the Dodgers just get off to a bad, you know, first 20 games? Then they're almost forced to keep their team as designed, as constructed, and have to uh, fight their way to get into whatever a 2020 postseason might look like. I say it's a moving target because we still don't know, and so I could see the Dodgers' depth either working against Kershaw from a fantasy perspective or not even coming into play for him from a fantasy perspective. It's just something to keep in mind. The bottom line here is that Clayton Kershaw is still a very good pitcher, and I think what we're seeing here in his rise is just a realization, fantasy community-wide, that this is still a very reliable guy. You're maybe not going to get the number one overall pitcher, but you almost certainly aren't going to get someone who's worse than, what, SP10, SP12, maybe in the entire league. And I think there's still that possibility. We've seen this with Scherzer. We've seen it with Verlander. Some pitchers just find like this second wind in their career where they get back to an elite level. Verlander 
for a couple seasons in Detroit, I think it was around the time he had that core muscle repair surgery. He was one of those guys that I kind of thought, okay, this is this is the beginning of the end for him. He had an amazing career. I didn't see his resurgence coming at that time, and Kershaw's drop-off hasn't been nearly as steep as Verlander's was. Again, both of those drops were tied to injuries. So I do think there's also like that room for Kershaw to sort of surge back up into the same stratosphere as the big four. Now, I think the key difference there is that Kershaw doesn't have that same fastball velocity that Verlander has had throughout his career yeah. and has been able to kind of get back. And even Scherzer, right? There's there's more velo there to fall back on, and maybe that's what makes Kershaw a little different. But I don't know. I, I think there's still a chance that... Mm-hmm. You look at like a 358 ERA and a 113 whip projection from Derek Cardi's system, the bat. That's the most pessimistic ERA of the ones posted on fan graphs. I would, I would expect Kershaw to beat that for a few years. I would if expect I had to guess on it right now. Yeah, I would expect him to beat it too. I, I, I have trouble going to a top four ceiling just because of the strikeouts, right? Like I think there is a very narrow band of realistic. Uh, outcomes for Clayton Kershaw this season, and it falls somewhere between SP6 and SP12, right? Like, to me, Blake Snell, someone who we talked about earlier, could be uh, SP2, right? I mean, he could, because of the, the strikeout upside that he brings to the table, he could hit the 99th percentile of his realistic outcomes like he did a couple of seasons ago and be one of the very best pitchers. I think he has a higher ceiling than Kershaw, but a much, much lower floor. And again, this is a part of a draft where I am always going to be trying to lock in floor, knowing that these guys are pretty high ceiling guys too. And we're talking about this stage of the draft. I just have trouble getting to that height on Kershaw just because I just, right. I mean, the strikeouts we can say pretty comfortably aren't going to be there in the abundance that we expect them to be there for DeGrom, Cole, Scherzer at all. Yeah, I guess because I mean, even even at the peak for Clayton Kershaw, he was in the 31 to 33% strikeout range. And that's been a few years now. It was 2016 was the last time he got up above 30%, 29.8% in 2017, and now 23.8% and 26.8% in 2018 and 2019, respectively. Uh, let's shift the focus over to some hitters who have moved up inside the top 50. Matt Olson up seven spots. I just think he's one of those guys that, People are realizing with the stat cast numbers especially, he just hits the ball hard, and he does that pretty frequently. He's not as uh, swing and miss heavy as we thought he would be earlier in his career. He's kind of shown a little better floor in that regard than I expected. Uh, so I'm, I'm not stunned to see him creeping up the board. And then there's Cattell Marte, who's up almost a half round in a 12-team league as well, about five spots up from where he was in February. I think there's a broader point that you wanted to make with Cattell Marte and some other second base eligible players in that range. Uh, you know, what do you what do you make of Cattell Marte kind of creeping up the board? Yeah, well, we were looking through this spreadsheet, and there's a cluster of players who you know not not back to back exactly, but right around one another uh, that Cattell Marte is a part of. You've also got. Javi Baez, Keston Hira, and Ozzy Albee. So you've got three guys who are second base eligible. Then you've got the uh, former second base eligible and now shortstop only Javier Baez. Young guys, guys with a lot of overlapping skill sets. But it is the the second base part that is most interesting. And you pointed this out. Uh, A suggestion that maybe the, uh, the... 
fantasy community at large is coming to the realization that the second base position is very top heavy and you've got some superstars at this position uh, who are eligible to play it in fantasy leagues and then the bottom does start to fall out and it does feel as though if you don't get one of the best players at this position that there is really no middle class you almost go from best to yeah, fine. I, I guess I'll start this guy. Uh, I sort of put myself in a position where I have to start him, so I can live with him. I can see his. I can see the uh, the charms that he has, especially uh, when he fits in with the rest of the team. Since uh, I didn't get one of those second basemen early, and I think that could push up guys uh, like that. I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, maybe not get this high, but Yoan Moncada uh, be one of those guys too, uh, because of his second base and third base eligibility. Uh, a couple of positions um, that I, I think fantasy owners are going to want to prioritize this season, uh, but it's an, it's an interesting look at the second base position at large and also at the skill set. Uh, these are guys who can combine uh, power and speed uh, in a way that we don't necessarily see a whole lot of across the league anymore. So it, it's a group that I really like having one of, or at least a player similar to that. Ketel Marte has been one of my favorite players for a long time, was really happy to see him breakthrough last year and even though he doesn't have much of a track record to back it up I think what we saw last year is the player he had been trending toward becoming for a few years now and then it just all came together in one big rush it wasn't uh like uh, the first guy who comes to mind for me is Nolan Arenado a guy who you know slowly built a couple of bricks and then boom broke through after making those incremental gains. It just all seemed to arrive at once for Cattell Marte, and I understand why people look at that a little bit askance from uh, time to time, but the underlying skill set for Marte has always been there, has me very interested in him. He's a guy who I've been targeting aggressively and who I will be going after in the one auction I do have remaining, and also in our Triple Crown auctions. I keep forgetting about those. I'll be going after him uh, in, uh, in the mixed in the NL there as well. It's like 14 hours of auctions to do <laughs> in the next three weeks. It's going to end up being a lot, but I'm I'm excited because it's just a, a way to hang out and, and obviously do some good uh, along the way. And I think with Cattell Marte, the thing that I maybe missed in my prep for last season was that he came out of 2018 with the highest average exit velocity of his career. So he was up at 88.5 miles per hour coming out of 2018. That was up almost two full miles per hour from 2017. And that was up almost five miles per hour from 2016. So his transformation was not necessarily overnight. There was kind of a, a middle ground. There was a step forward in 2018 that may have been overlooked, at least by me. And then he jumped it up to 89.8, got the launch angle up a bit last year, quite a bit actually, almost like doubled his average launch angle. Uh, for a guy that has always done a good job putting a lot of balls in play, that's the way to unlock more power, right? Just hit the ball harder when you hit it and hit it at the right launch angle. Uh, easier said than done, obviously, but um, yeah. there was th th there were some indicators there if you were looking for a breakout at the price that obviously made sense. So that might lead us to a future topic of, well, okay, who's the next Cattell Marte then? Smart guy. Maybe you could help us find the next one <laughs> who's outside the top 200 or something and you know not just say, hey, yeah, maybe we should have seen that coming because that doesn't really help anybody. <laughs> Uh, but that second base scarcity thing is very real. I think Owen Poindexter wrote about it for the Athletic. Whew, how long ago was that now? Probably only like <laughs> four years? to six weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, but it feels like uh, like six years ago. And then we talked about it at First Pitch Florida as well. Todd Zola led a panel uh, that Mike Gianella and Eric Carabell and I were on. And, and just seeing the charts again 
one after another, position by position, you could see how quickly second base tails off and it makes you prioritize it. Like I've never really been a positional scarcity player. It's never really been Me my either. approach. But I think when you have comparable players available and that's kind of a big separating factor, I'm going to go ahead and, and choose the guy who can play second, can fill that void for me if I feel like I can get a comparable third base eligible player later or a comparable outfielder later. I mean, why not? So I guess I am thinking more about scarcity with regard to a position now than I have probably in, I don't know, several years. Uh, but I think the I think the big thing that sets this position apart isn't necessarily just the scarcity; it's the players themselves. I mean, look at who we're talking about at the top of the second base position: Glaber Torres, Ozzy Albies, Jose Altuve, Cattell Marte, Jonathan VR. Not my cup of tea, but could steal a whole lot of bases. Keston Hira. I mean, these aren't just the best second basemen; these are really, really good hitters, all around players, guys who deserve to be taken in the first you know, 40 or 45 picks of every single fantasy draft. It's not like the catcher position scarcity thing where a guy is being taken as high as he is strictly because of the position. So while positional scarcity does factor into this discussion when we're talking about the second baseman, it's not the driver. It's the fact that these guys are really good players and they happen to be at a top-heavy position. It's not, this is a top-heavy position, I have to get one or I'm screwed. I think that's an important distinction to make. Yeah, and there's kind of another wave of second basemen. We've talked about this draft season. There's the three guys who are multi-position eligible, DJ LeMahieu, Max Muncy, Jeff McNeil. Like They're frequently kind of clustered together. Whit Merrifield's kind of clustered into that bunch too, and maybe McNeil goes a little later. Um, I think what's happening too is teams are looking at second base as a place where they don't necessarily need a everyday player. They move guys around because of shifting. They platoon that spot a bit more, and I think that's sort of changed the way the pool looks as well. And we're just lucky that Cattell Marte still has second base eligibility. Uh, with Starling Marte there, I think he kind of plays a lot more second base and keeps that going forward. But like Keston Hira is a potential superstar, and if he were to bring down his K rate, if he gets down even to 25%, and last season... As a rookie, he was at 30.7%. The way he hits the ball, there could be a 35 to 40 home run peak from him over a full season, especially in that park. But he also steals some bases. And I think he's one of the the higher batting average floor guys I've seen who strikes out as much as he did as a rookie. It's kind of a, a strange thing to, to put out there, but... He hits the ball to all fields, and because of that ability to make the hard contact, it's only a matter of time before uh, everything sort of falls into place for him. So ordinarily, I would look at that skill set and, and see red flags, but maybe it's because I spent so much time watching him. I just believe that a 30% K rate is not his true talent level with that particular skill. I, I think that you're right about that, and I think I've talked about this with uh, our colleague Al Melchior on Fantasy Baseball in 15 a handful of times, um, that when a guy has what Keston here has, ninth overall pick three years ago, this guy was in the 2017 amateur draft, he was the ninth overall pick, this will be his age 23 season, he basically has never struggled at the game of baseball his entire life, he comes up, he is right from the get-go last year, Excellent, and went back down to the minors for whatever reason, but then came back and was awesome. I mean, just a great player from the moment he stepped foot on a major league diamond. That brand of player, 
I think, deserves the benefit of the doubt, even if we haven't yet seen it, in being able to make the necessary adjustments to his game to fully unlock what his full potential is. And if you go back to what he did in the minors at 2018 uh, at the AA level, only struck out 18.2% of the time. Last year at the AAA level, moved up to 26.3%, but still a manageable K rate when you consider everything else he does as a hitter. And this is the kind of guy who I want to bet on DVR, being able to make those changes because of every other thing that is part of his profile, including just being a great baseball player. These are the sorts of uh, cerebral guys that we should believe in being able to make those necessary changes. I think you can look right in his same division to Chris Bryant, same sort of guy who was a high draft pick, uh, who had a great pedigree, who never struggled at the game of baseball, who comes up his rookie year, wins rookie of the year, but strikes out a ton. And every year since then, that strikeout rate has come down and is now at a point where it isn't even a thing. Chris Bryant's strikeouts really don't matter that much because they're not even at an elevated rate. They're at about a league average rate. So, you know, I think we could see that same sort of progression from Keston Hira. And if we do, watch out. This guy's going to be a first-round draft pick in fantasy leagues before long. Yeah, I mean, that's an MVP foundation as a hitter. I think there are some legitimate flaws with his defense that, you know, if, if you want to be optimistic look at what Marcus Simeon has done over the years tons of of work put in of course to get there but just because you open your big league career with a major flaw with a K rate or with uh, inconsistent defensive skills like doesn't mean that's who you are for your whole career really comes down to makeup and and a team's ability to develop talent but I'm not worried at all about Keston no. Hira. And really, quick, let me just let me just mention one more thing. We can move on. I feel like that's a blind spot for the fantasy community. Uh, I feel like it, it, it's the way that we understandably lean on projections and treat projections almost as gospel rather than just the average of these these simulations and these realistic ranges of outcome. And I think that players like Hira need to be given that benefit of the doubt, and we should be trusting young guys with great pedigrees who have only had success to be able to make the changes to their game that they clearly need to make. If you and I can sit here, Derek, and say, Castanera has this strikeout rate. If he brings it down, he could be the superstar. If you and I and everyone else in the fantasy baseball world knows that, you know, we can recite that. We could, you know, you could shake us up, shake us awake out of sleep at three in the morning, and we could say that about Castanera right like that. Uh, you think that he knows it, and you think that the Brewers' uh, coaching infrastructure and hitting coaches all know that up and down? Of course they do, and these are the sorts of guys we should be trusting to make those changes. So I think that we need to turn away ever so slightly from reliance on projections as much as we have uh, to this point. A 38-homer, 16-steal season between AAA and the big leagues last year for Hira that was in 141 combined games. It's yeah. really good. Dude can play. <laughs> the dude can play. Yeah. He, he, yeah the man can hit. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about a few top 100 fallers. Uh, some injured guys kind of lead the list. You know, Aaron Judge, John Carlos Stanton. Big questions as to where they're going to be at physically once things are able to resume. Judge fell 35 spots in March. Stanton fell 23 spots. But again, news broke that significantly changed their outlooks. I think the question is more forward-looking with those guys. It's just like, what do you make of Judge especially? Because this stress reaction in his ribs apparently happened back in the fall. Like, this is a September injury that didn't heal over a complete offseason. A few extra weeks now could help, but I'm 
oddly pessimistic about this injury given how long ago it seemed to have happened and it bums me out because Judge is one of those guys who I really liked when draft season started. Yeah, and I mean, you worry about what that means about a, a stress fracture in his rib when he is able to come back because this is a guy who we go after in fantasy because of his immense power. Well, how much torque are you going to be generating with a stress fracture in your rib even after it's healed? I mean, it could be one of those things that he's able to play and he gives them an upgrade. He gives the Yankees an upgrade in their lineup over you know Clint Frazier or Mike Tauchman or whatever, but is it to the level that we expect Aaron Judge to be able to provide? I'm not so sure about that, and so that's what concerns me about him. Not just coming back, but what sort of player is he when he does come back? I will say that the price has gotten to a point where I totally understand wanting to dive in. I understand wanting to dive in on him more than than I understand wanting to dive in on Justin Verlander at where his price is, but there are still some major risks associated even if he is healthy by time whatever 2020 opening day ends up being. Yeah, so I'm kind of staying away from Judge for the most part. ADP at the end of March was 66. Stanton ended up at 81. I'm actually a little more optimistic about Stanton on a a pure health curve at this point. If you're just kind of saying, okay, I'm going to take one of these guys because they're both discounted. I would lean more towards Stanton. Especially since he's going to DH. I mean, they're never going to throw him out there. Judge is going to have to do all this while also playing right field every time he plays or most every time he plays. I wonder where they're going to end up playing Miguel and Duhar defensively because I I think I landed on this takeaway a month ago now. Again, time is uh, a mess, but and Duhar is one of those players where he's already shown us he can hit in the big leagues. The injury last year was a frustrating one because I wanted to see what the follow-up was going to bring, but as a rookie in 2018, he hit 297, 27 home runs. Obviously, in that lineup, plenty of opportunities to drive in runs and score runs. 92 RBIs, 83 runs scored. Uh, 16% K rate in his first full go-round in the big leagues, which is just incredible. He doesn't walk, and I think this is kind of like another one of the the problems we talked about with Castanhira. If a guy comes into the league and doesn't walk right away, we have the the sabermetric lens on, and it's kind of like, oh, there's a flaw with, with Andujar. He doesn't walk. But he doesn't strike out that much. If you don't strike out... 20% 20% of the time even, you could get away with a low walk rate. And I just look at him as a guy that, even though I don't know where exactly he's going to play, I think the Yankees are going to prioritize getting him, if not everyday playing time, something very close to it. And he's easily just a, a buy for me anywhere I can. If I haven't already filled the UT spot, that is. Uh, it's a little tricky to draft two utility guys in most leagues where you only have the one spot unless you think you're going to get uh, a position and like an in-season eligibility added very quickly after the season begins. Yeah, way back when, uh, when I did the uh, division-by-division position battle miniseries with our beat writers, uh, and I talked to Lindsay Adler, who covers the Yankees for us, uh, this was, when I, when I talked to her, uh, everything was still going along smoothly, spring training was still uh, happening, and she said that you know, they were getting Duhar plenty of time in left field, and that he was taking to it 
you know, just fine. Um, yeah, I don't mean to keep pointing us back to the Cubs, but look at Kyle Schwarber, right? A guy who had never played the outfield before. Is he going to win a gold glove at any point in his career? No, of course not. But does he make the majority of the plays? Yeah. Is he a defensive liability? No, not at all. And I think Andujar could follow that sort of path and obviously brings a much higher offensive ceiling than Mike Taukman, who, you know, is probably slotted in or was the default slot as their left fielder uh, to start the season. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Andujar become a, at least a semi-regular out there and left. And I think that almost any, if you are a good enough baseball player to make it to the majors, I mean, no disrespect to any corner outfielders, but I feel like 99% of Major League Baseball players could play a serviceable corner outfield. Uh, it's no disrespect to the guys who do it at an excellent level, uh, like Ichiro used to, like Jason Hayward still does, but you know, corner outfield, you're not really asking them to, to patrol too much ground. You got to hit some cutoff men. You got to be somewhat of a threat or hopefully somewhat of a threat with your arm to keep guys from taking an extra base. I think a lot of guys can fill that spot, especially when it is literally their job to pick it up. I think Andujar does that, and I think his bat demands being in that lineup, especially if the Stanton and or Judge injuries end up being worse or lingering more than the Yankees are expecting them to at the moment. Yeah, Ryan Braun has been a, a negative defender based on the Fancraft's defensive mm-hmm. war ratings every year of his career. Yeah. And have, <laughs> and have the Brewers ever cared? No, it just yeah, it doesn't not. it doesn't <laughs> matter that yeah. much. Like if if you get that much offensive production, you can take the small hit defensively in that spot. I think I think more and more teams are, are realizing that's the case. But yeah, just don't, be, uh, don't be don't be Matt Holiday tripping over himself the in the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, are, I mean, there are some highlight reel, uh, low light reel moments from corner outfielders who aren't corner outfielders. But I think you can you can get by, and yes. it's not going to wreck your team in the long run. Uh, a couple other fallers in the top 100, both Victor Robles and Tommy Pham fell just three and a half spots. I thought Pham that was kind of interesting me. because yeah, the elbow injury I think is is the issue though, right? Because he he had that in September last year as well. So I think just the fact that that came back and, and slowed him down mm-hmm. early on in spring training maybe scared some people off, but he was underpriced to begin with. Yeah, and that, that's exactly, exactly. I I like him a lot as a player so that I, you're going to see in the 70 to 80 range of some drafts right now. I know there's some risk there. If I if I already had a player with some injury risk, which I probably wouldn't before him, he's kind of being drafted to the point where I'm comfortable inviting a little bit of injury risk onto my roster. I just I think he's overlooked year 100%. over year. I mean, three years in a row with at least 20 homers, at least 15 steals each of those seasons. And two of those three years, he had 25 stolen bases. He gets on yep. base. The average floor is high as well. And Robles, I think the fall for him is probably just that the initial idea, I think Britt Garoli had this report a while ago that Robles might get a chance to lead off. They kind of pivoted away from that as March rolled along. And I think people were starting to say, all right, it's another year of Victor Robles hitting 7th or 8th for the Nationals, and that's going to drag down his run scored. And uh, But still, we're talking about a guy that I think is kind of a a young Starling Marte in terms of the rotisserie profile. I think the average exit velocity numbers are, are very low, but he's young. He can hit the ball harder in the future. He could get stronger. Like I, just, I, I think it's funny that people are sort of discounting the possibility of Victor Robles still getting better as a big league hitter. 
it's, it's that blind spot, man. I mean, uh, people people lean on it too much, and the, the, like these guys are not fully formed products at all. Victor Robles is what going to be twenty three years old soon. I mean, there is a lot of growth still to be had in Victor Robles, and I understand that the lineup concerns. But I think there's a lot of room in this lineup, right? I mean, Anthony Rendon is a huge hole left behind for this team. I mean, how many guys, if you look up and down at the Nationals lineup, how many guys are you sure like they are going to stick where uh, Davey Martinez likely has them drawn up to start the season? I would say Trey Turner and Adam Eaton. I, I expect those guys to be able to stick at the top of the lineup or in a lucrative spot. Maybe they move some things around, but in a lucrative spot, we can say. Juan Soto, obviously is going to. And then beyond that, I think it might just be them. I mean, Starlin Castro, is he going to for sure play every single day? And if he does, like, does he command being in the heart of this order? Uh, the first base platoon between Ryan Zimmerman and Eric Thames in an ideal world, whoever is starting is going to be, you know, hitting fifth or sixth. But yeah, I, I wouldn't, I don't think any of us would be surprised if those guys produced below average platoon numbers from the first base position. Victor Robles is the one guy on this team uh, outside of that guaranteed uh, three that I said who could really make a jump this year. And even within that group, right, Adam Eaton is who he is. So, I mean, there is a very realistic pathway this season to Victor Robles being easily one of the three best hitters on this team, along with Juan Soto and Trey Turner. And if that ends up being the case, he's not going to be buried in the lineup, no matter what the rest of the players are doing. Maybe I'm a total dingus, but I also look back at prospect reports. Uh, Fangraphs does a great job with this. They put actual grades on players. You can look on, on their player pages and see those after the fact. But Victor Robles, <laughs> this was in 2019, this report was was put out, had, a, had at the time a 60-grade hit tool, 45 game power, 50 raw power, so kind of average power, mm -hmm. 70 speed, uh, a 70 defensive grade, a 70 arm, which gives him a future value 65 grade. That is a future all-star. Like, that is a really good player. That's a really good scouting report. And if the one thing you're missing as a player right now is power and you're 22 years old, going to be 23 <laughs> in May... I'm not worried about that. I think teams are figuring out how to get more power out of guys who don't have that much power, and we saw the baseball do its part to drive up home runs anyway. We're talking about a, a league where stolen bases are hard to come by, and this is a guy who's good at stealing bases and has a manager who will let him steal bases. Yeah, maybe hitting eighth is not ideal, but that's what he did last year. He was mostly hitting eighth last season, and he had a 17-28 season. And if you look at this team, too, I mean, they're going to have to, I think, lean into that uh, tendency on this team because that's a strength for this team. I mean, being aggressive on the base, base paths, going first to third on singles, going first to home on doubles, stealing bases way more than the league average, that's going to be a strength for this team when you uh, consider Robles and uh, Trey Turner and a guy who you know, maybe doesn't have the speed he used to but is still a very sound base runner in Adam Eaton. This is a team that I think uh, constitutionally is going to want to be aggressive on the base paths and one of the best ways for them to do it is to get arguably their most dangerous base runner as many plate appearances as possible. This isn't only about Robles. It's about the way he fits into this Nationals team, and I think there is a lot to like. I'm actually sort of talking, you and I are talking me into him a little bit more in the midst of this, you know, three or five minutes that we've been talking about him because I just think he is the sort of piece that can help them make up for the loss for of Anthony Rendon and not in an apples-to-apples -apples way, but in a way that ends up zeroing out the bottom line, not completely, but 
in a way that does uh, make this Nationals team be able to handle losing, you know, the guy who was, you know, right there with Juan Soto as their best player last season. Right. If Juan Soto gets a little bit better, which is still possible, and Robles gets quite a bit better, that's a pretty big step towards covering the loss of Rendon if you also pad back correctly with some of the veterans they brought in. If you went from a a six-win player at third base to a a two-and-a-half-win player, but you get that extra three-and-a-half wins you lost from Robles, Soto, and maybe smaller contributions from some other guys, like, okay, like, you're you're not as devastated by the loss of Anthony Rendon as you could be because a few different players sort of picked up that slack. Let's go to the and other end of the top the 100 for a few of it, right? I mean, they uh, they uh, they obviously had a ready-made replacement, but uh, they did it with losing Bryce Harper. So this is a team that uh, has proven to us that they can do that with players after they lose a big-name guy. Yeah, absolutely. It helps to have uh, elite prospects coming in at the it time does. of losing uh, Not exactly talent, the same. But, they, <laughs> but that's great work by, by Mike Rizzo and, and that front office to have that sort of talent in place. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum and close things out today with some of the biggest risers inside the top 100. Of course, these are other guys, guys we didn't mention already on the show. Bo Bichette up almost 10 picks, 8.9 spots in ADP from February to March. Not a big surprise. People really like Bo Bichette. Uh, Nick Castellanos jumped up six spots. Jose Barrios up six. Corey Kluber up five. Nelson Cruz up five. And then Tyler Glass now up just a little less than five. Um, we don't have to spend a lot of time on Bo Bichette because I think he gets a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Castellanos, you saw him in the second half with the Cubs last year, just getting out of Detroit, seemed to rejuvenate him quite a bit. And now mm-hmm. if we get games played in their normal ballparks, he goes to a very hitter-friendly ballpark. And if we get games played in Arizona all season, that's a more hitter-friendly environment and set of environments than he's typically played in as well. So I, I t- totally understand where the Nick Castellanos optimism is coming from. Me too. Um, I, I feel like this was just the market sort of slow to correct to what he did with the Cubs and then the landing spot with the Reds. So this feels not, I mean, technically it's a rise, but it feels more like the place he was always supposed to be and that he was being a little bit uh, overlooked uh, in early drafts. So not a surprise to me at all. The one guy who does stand out as a surprise to me in this group is Jose Barrios. Um, I I just don't see it, Derek. To to, to jump half around, I, I wonder if it's just this general, you know, pitcher concern and people feel like they need to get someone in this range because there is sort of a drop off once we get beyond this uh, Barrios Kluber group. It does start to get to a point where you're feeling like you're filling out a rotation rather than building the top of your rotation. I wonder if that's what's driving it, but I don't know. For me, even though I've been uh, singing the virtues of trusting young players to make the adjustments uh, that they need to make and giving them the benefit of the doubt there, I just feel like if we were going to see signs of Barrios being the pitcher that a lot of us thought he could be when he first came into the majors, we would have seen a little bit more of it to this point of his career. I think the fact that they got so much mileage out of pitchers with less talent than Barrios is is part of the optimism, but he also... I think it was showing a little extra velo this spring before things stopped. And I just think he's a guy who has good command. He has good secondary stuff. Uh, he had a new breaking ball he was working in as well. So there were just a lot of ways for him to 
possibly unlock everything. And, and maybe when you look at the AL Central, even with the White Sox being improved, you still see a lot of matchups uh, against the Tigers and Royals. So that's still mm-hmm. a pretty soft landing spot. Uh, all in all, still a guy I believe in. So we're definitely on, on different wavelengths when it comes to Jose Barrios. I've, I've mentioned him as a guy who, if I was going really heavy with bats early on in a draft or an auction, I could easily see myself buying Barrios or drafting Barrios as my first pitcher off the board where he's going, kind of in that pick 75 range, probably like a $20 mm-hmm. pitcher in an auction. And I might be a little more aggressive with my next couple of pitching buys or draft picks after that because he's not in that top 10 range. But I think he could get there. I think there's still there's still a good chance we haven't seen his best season. And for all those things that I've mentioned, the thing that I actually believe in the most is just the organization. Minnesota sure. has put together a group around Wes Johnson. They just understand how to maximize the value of their pitchers. So I think we're going to get I think we're getting a guy who's maybe a dark horse Cy Young candidate. Ooh. I think that's the the ceiling with him. He doesn't have to reach that to be a profitable fantasy pick where he's going. So I, I just right. think there's a a whole bunch of things people are glomming onto with him, and I get it. I'm I'm under. It's not like Tiger King. I, I don't I don't <laughs> understand Tiger King. Like Tiger King is just like like going to the circus and and laughing because people are different there, and that's yeah. that's kind of mean and weird, and I don't I'm not into that. But I get it with Jose Barrios. <laughs> My wife and I dropped out after two episodes. Also, we just you know we we had to we had to throw it on because everyone in the world is talking about it. And we watched two episodes and looked at each other after the second one. We're like, so we're we're done with this, right? And uh, <laughs> and both said yes. So so I'm with you there. Not with you. I, I just feel like you know Barrios has had back to back 32 start seasons in 2017. He made 25 starts. That's a pretty good sample, even for a guy who's just about to turn 26 in May. And, you know, the ERA is ranged between 3.68 and 3.89. Uh, the X fit between 3.89 and 4.51. He struggled with the long ball each of the last two seasons. Uh, a little bit less than a strikeout per inning in his career. Only one year, 2018, where he gave you more than a strikeout per inning. That's why I just, why I say that even though the stuff looks excellent and there are some starts where he just looks unhittable and still 26, and you mentioned the great infrastructure that Minnesota has uh, in its uh, pitching coach staff and, and really all the way down through uh, the minors. is a team that has done a really good job of building a pitching infrastructure to help their pitchers uh, reach their heights. I just feel like we would have seen something from Jose Barrios that suggests he is more than a reliable number two. And right now, that's where I have him uh, being uh, in the real in real world, which makes me not really have uh, a ton of confidence in him being more than that. Still a great pitcher. I think it's a fair price. I just don't see there being much of a ceiling beyond what he has shown us over the last three years. I'd be up for having some kind of combination of three out of the... Barrios, Brandon Woodruff, mm. Sonny Gray, and Corey Kluber cluster. Like if I could yeah. somehow go back to back to back pitchers with three picks after going all hitters to start, if I came back with those three starters, I would feel just as good about my starting pitching as if I had got one of the uh, big three, I guess we'll call them now with Verlander not being a part of it, or even getting maybe two out of the first three or four rounds. I think it's just as strong of a foundation and you might end up being better off because of the, the extra quality you're getting from that core group of hitters that you drafted before them. 
I am 100% with you. I've actually done that in a few drafts. And in those drafts, I am I'm happy to go after Barrios. But that is the that is the scenario in which I'm going after Barrios. If I get a pitcher in one of like the first four rounds of a draft, I'm almost certainly not going to end up with Jose Barrios on my team. But I do think that that is where he becomes a really intriguing play is if you are building your staff with three guys in that cluster – then I do like Barrios because even though I don't think the ceiling is beyond what we've seen from him to this point of his career, I think the floor is rock solid. You are not going to fall beneath that with Jose Barrios. Just too good of a talent, too much of a track record hitting this level of performance to suddenly expect at age 26 he's going to fall beneath it. So I do like him as that sort of play, but that's really the sort of play that I like him as. And just since you brought him up, I'm just going to mention Dark Horse Cy Young candidate, Brandon Woodruff. I, I mean, I love that guy. I love that stuff. Love the fastball velocity and think that guy, if one of those four guys or one, if one, if you told me one guy from that cluster of pitchers, um, you know, maybe you throw Trevor Bauer in that mix as well. Uh, you told me one guy from that group is going to leap up and have just a monster top 10 fantasy season. Woodruff would be my pick. I should have drafted more Woodruff back in December and January because his ADP jumped up and, and people I think are, are seeing the things that make you and I excited about him. I think yeah. the the market caught on to him pretty quickly as as research ramped up, but I'm I'm with you. I think Woodruff has true like front of the rotation stuff and uh, that brings a, a ton of potential value to us as fantasy players if that happens over a complete season in 2020 no matter how long that season ends up being. Uh, we're going to get to some other risers and fallers. On upcoming episodes, we'll kind of go outside the top 100. We'll see for see if there's any bigger movers that are interesting, bigger fallers who are interesting. Uh, so be sure to check out the show in the weeks ahead as we kind of work that into the conversation. You can find us on Twitter. He's at M. Beller. I'm at Derek Van Riper. This podcast is available on a lot of platforms where you can rate and review it. So if you're listening on iTunes or any place where you can actually leave us a rating or review, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, we are running a 90-day free trial right now, theathletic.com slash free 90 days. Uh, if you'd like to sign up and you want to get 40% off a subscription for the full year, you can do that at theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast. We really appreciate all of you who are, are listening to our shows and, and reading the site and have supported us with a subscription. Uh, obviously, these are very difficult times, and uh, hopefully we can do our small part to kind of help everybody uh, with the distraction either pods to listen to, articles to read, or some combination of those things. The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns on Wednesday. Have a great weekend.